Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, February the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times with me, Hugh Linehan, and my colleagues from the political team, Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. Hi to you both. Good afternoon. But ho, Hugh. So it's Lots to talk about this week, but Pat, uh, the main item on the agenda, I think, it's been on the agenda for quite a long time, a very long time, in fact, but there really seems to be movement now on negotiations between the EU and the UK over resolving the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes, so it seems that even though I can't quite believe I'm saying this again, that we're approaching the end game on this particular aspect of, uh, of Brexit. There have been reports in recent weeks, mostly in the British press, which Dublin sources have been a little sceptical about, that the agreement between the Commission and the British government on the revised application of the protocol is done. Um, My information, both from Brussels and, and, and Dublin, is and has been for the last couple of weeks, is not quite yet, but given the... Um, the, the noises coming out of both Brussels and London and the visit of Rishi Sunak, who flew to Belfast last night, has been meeting this morning with the DUP, we're told. Last I checked, he was still in a lengthy meeting with the DUP. And clearly what's going on here, Hugh, is he is trying to sell a deal that he has, to all intents and purposes, made with the Commission uh, about the protocol. He's trying to sell that to the DUP in order to persuade them to... Uh, go back into the power-sharing institutions. Now, the DUP has seven tests that it, um, it, it has set for any deal. All its seven tests are not going to be met, uh, of course. The question, uh, I guess, is, is there enough in it for for the DUP to give even a grudging approval to the deal? which would, I guess, unlock ERG support in Westminster for, uh, for the deal and, uh, and therefore enable the protocol to be, uh, to be put to bed and the power-sharing institutions to be up and running for the 25th anniversary of the, uh, of the Good Friday Agreement. I, I remain sceptical, to be honest, um, but we'll see what happens in Belfast today. But that framing you described there implies that an agreement is essentially, and maybe I'm, I'm mishearing you here, is essentially based upon the grudging acquiescence of the DUP, unlocking the support of the ERG, and then Rishi Sunak um, being able to go ahead. But is that really what's happening? Is Rishi Sunak not prepared to go ahead without the support of the DUP right now? Only if he thinks he can get his own party on side in sufficient numbers that he doesn't have to rely on Labour support. Now, it's not even clear at this stage, to be honest, Hugh, if it will require a vote uh, in the House of Commons. The assumption all along was that there would be uh, an agreement with the EU that would affect how the protocol is implemented. But there's some chat last night of a new legal text and an accompanying political declaration. Now, I simply don't know at this stage if that is what is 
uh, what is envisaged. If that is the case, then I guess we're into another phase of the ERG assembling its star chamber of legal luminaries uh, to pass judgment over the uh, over the prime minister's um, uh, over the prime minister's deal. I'm not sure, frankly, if Sunak is strong enough to muscle the uh, the ERG into supporting this deal uh, if the DUP stay uh, outside it. I think there is an assumption in the British government that um, that the ERG will eventually come on board and that even if the DUP don't acquiesce or don't approve of the deal at this point, that ultimately they'll come on board because they have no, uh, they'd have no other option. I'm not sure about that analysis, to be honest. I think it underplays the extent to which the DUP and unionism more broadly is often just as happy, or at least the extreme end of unionism, is just as happy outside the gates shouting betrayal as it is inside the gates working the power-sharing institutions. All of which is a rather long-winded way of saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think there is a certain amount of optimism bias that is currently at play in, uh, in London. Less so in Dublin, I think. And remember that Brussels also has the opportunity or, or, or has the option rather of simply waiting out this British government, of not applying the pro- protocol strictly as it exists at the moment, of extending the grace periods, of waiting out the British government, which is going to last more than, we guess, you know, 12 to 18 months until the next British election, and then dealing with a uh, a friendlier British government, probably led by Keir Starmer, or a British government certainly that is more interested, uh, judging by his recent pronouncements, on something like dynamic alignment uh, that would allow closer trade rela- links between the EU uh, and the UK for economic reasons. And that, of course, is why Rishi Sunak wants to get the deal as well. It's not that he is especially, I think, concerned uh, by what the DUP thinks about it, but he wants to give his economy, uh, his stuttering economy, a bit of a lift. So I think that's where we are at the moment. We'll know a lot more, I guess, after the meetings in Belfast, over the weekend and in the early days of next week. That's all very interesting. I'm conscious that for some listeners who are not familiar with the entire details of, of, of this, you know, it may sound a bit like an alphabet soup. The DUP is the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland. The ERG, the European Research Group, which is essentially the hard Brexit wing of the Conservative Party in Westminster. Gem. And one of the things that occurs to me about that is I think Pat is absolutely right in saying that this forms part of what Rishi Sunak considers essential steps that need to be taken if he's going to get the British economy back on track at all in any way in advance of the next general election and a potential, you know, massive loss to the Labour Party if you're to believe um, current polls. But there's another part of this, uh, and I've heard some commentators in the UK make it, which is that if Rishi Sunak is going to achieve his objective, which is really not to go down in history as a caretaker of a doomed government uh, until it just fell to uh, to Keir Stammer at the end of the days, if he's going to mount some sort of a revival, he kind of needs to take on the swivel-eyed loons in his own party, uh, among whom I would count first and foremost the, the ERG, but also, you know, Boris Johnson making trouble in the background all the time. At some point, he has to find a hill to stand on against those. And is it possible that this might be it? I like your description of the ERG there. Uh, I must write that down and steal it. Not Linehan's in fairness. I think that was uh, David Cameron's description of them, wasn't it? Like everything of mine, it's plagiarized. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm stealing it nonetheless. But yeah, I think you're right, obviously. I, I, I think that there does come a stage where he does have to kind of show the mettle of his leadership 
Um, now, whether he can change the kind of course that British politics is going in, in terms of towards Labour and the polls, you know, totally remains to be seen. But I think this is one of those issues that when he took over um, as Prime Minister, that there was a very much a softening of the rhetoric around the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Seemed to be better relations between both the UK and the EU and also between the Irish government and and, and the British government. Um, now, I think if he can get this deal done, Obviously, it will be probably one of the biggest planks of his of his legacy as his time as leader. But like Pat said, the, the devil here is in is in the detail. I mean, you know, we already mentioned that there have already been so many false dawns. It does strike me that the, that a, a deal is within kind of reaching distance. But for him, it, this is the most, I think, delicate game and you know it's not just his kind of leadership as well it's it's you know in, in terms of the leadership of the DUP like for Jeffrey Donalds it's one of the biggest calls I think that will be made by him uh, for unionism possibly for quite some time you know he has a number of options available to him either when we see the full detail like Pat was talking about in a new uh, legal text and also potentially a new political declaration when we see that either it's the case that that text and that deal is so acceptable that he can readily go for it, which is obviously not going to be an option. Perhaps it will end up being that this is the best of all outcomes and uh, that the least worst outcome and that he does manage to sell it to his party. But it will obviously change the the direction for politics in Northern Ireland um, for the coming decade. You know, we wouldn't have uh, elections, and I think, until 2027, aside from the council elections in, in May. And I think that's one of the interesting things as well. It's it's how the DUP and how the, the direction of unionism that rides on this call, basically accepting this deal or not, and what that then means for Rishi Sunak um, as a leader. Um, and like Pat said, the soundings from the different parties this morning, you know, Sinn Féin seemed, naturally, they seemed quite, I wouldn't say buoyant, but certainly more optimistic. Um, the DUP obviously are holding their fire for the moment. We haven't really heard from them, except uh, except Nigel Dodds, I think, was saying that it's premature. So we'll see over the next couple of days kind of exactly how this plays out. But, you know, I would also agree with what Pat said. I'm still, I will forever be unconvinced that a deal is ready to be done until I hear the phrase a deal has been done because we saw what happened. And there's also the issue of how the parties politically manage any announcing of a deal because we saw what happened with Leo Varadkar um, a couple of years ago. And I think that there is a whole stage managing element of this as well that has to be done. I think just to jump in very briefly there, I think Jen makes a very good point about this being not just a test of leadership for Rishi Sunak, but also possibly a defining test of leadership for uh, for Jeffrey Donaldson. I, I mean, to to my mind, you know, a, a protocol that works and gives Northern Ireland a foot in both the EU single market and the single market of, of the United Kingdom could be a powerful argument for unionism in any constitutional debates to come because... You know, if you're to roll the tape on, joining a United Ireland while the UK remains outside the, uh, the the European Union means taking one of those feet out 
uh, of of uh, of one of one market. It means leaving the UK single market to join with the EU single market. And I think if unionism could make that leap of imagination, which to be honest, currently it seems incapable of making, I think you could see the protocol becoming, you know, a very strong argument, a working protocol that brings economic benefits to Northern Ireland. That's after all what Northern Ireland businesses are saying becomes um, uh, becomes an ally of unionism rather than something. Uh, to be to be feared, but whether, as I say, whether unionism is capable of making that leap of imagination, I guess remains to be seen. With respect, Pat, you're not the first one to counsel a leap of imagination on the part of unionism, which advice has been uh, roundly roundly rebutted by the representatives of unionism. I do wonder, though, whether um, you know. I think you said earlier that they're not uncomfortable with the idea of remaining outside the walls and direct rule continuing. There's all kinds of bad stuff that comes out of that if it goes on for too long for the DUP, electorally and politically, I think. In a way, it's the kind of comfort position of, of, of the DUP. But ultimately, politics is about deal-making and about, you know, arriving at a compromise that is workable and acceptable to, uh, to all sides. And of course, unionism has spent lots of time outside the gate howling at the Lundies uh, inside the gates. But ultimately, unionism has always come back in to make, make the deal. And on each case, after the Anglo-Irish Agreement, after the Good Friday Agreement, it has done so, um, it has done so from a diminished, uh, diminished position. And I think if unionism is going to face the sort of constitutional debates uh, over the next 10, 20 years that are now coming on the political agenda, then you know, it probably needs to get uh, a little bit more long-term in its thinking. Right. Jeffrey Donaldson, you've been told there. I think you need, I think you need to think about what Pat has to, has to say to you there. We're going to move on to another, uh, another subject. It is kind of related because it's, it's really about politics and it's about the impact that politics has, personally on politicians as well, as well as the, the politics and the constitutional situation of uh, what I think we're supposed to call these islands um, these days. And that's the shock resignation of Scottish First Minister and leader of the uh, Scottish Nationalist Party, Nicola Sturgeon, um, this week, Jen. This has very much been framed by some commentators as being similar to uh, a similar announcement uh, a few weeks ago by Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand, um, pointing to, which we know is true, and I know you've written about the particular pressures on women in high political profile positions. But it seems to me it was quite interesting what she was talking about in her resignation speech and the pressure she was talking about apply across the board to many politicians if you've been at the, the centre of the political vortex for years as as she has. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was really listening to her, I suppose, her resignation statement lengthy and she took, you know, many questions from a range of journalists and, and what like what she was outlining she said it was less about any immediate term political crisis or any immediate pressure. She said that if it was about some immediate pressure, if it was that she couldn't handle that, she probably would have gone a long time ago. Um, and the, what she was basically describing was very similar to a phrase that Jacinda Ardern used, which was that she didn't have enough left in the tank. That was what Jacinda Ardern said. And what Nicola Sturgeon was saying was 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 quite the same. You know, she was talking about being a human, being about not being able to go for a cup of coffee, about the impact on her family, about, I think she used the word brutality in relation to what it's like to operate in politics at the moment. And the, the, the gist that I got from her was that she felt that she was worn out effectively and that she didn't have enough to give the job 100%. Um, and, you know, 
I fully would accept that. I do think obviously there are many issues that have come up. You know, independence is the, is the biggest one in Scotland. There have been issues in relation to gender reform. There have been roused uh, transgender prisoners, row, there you know, the threat of strikes. Um, there, there was a lot happening domestically in Scotland that I think would have piled that pressure on. But the, the picture that she's painting is of kind of a, a, a public discourse that is more polarised. And I think that was the most interesting thing that she said about the reason why she was stepping down as first minister is because she has become such a polarised figure that it is hard for her or anybody to come together on either side of any given debate. Um, and that speaks a little bit to her as a politician, but it speaks a lot to what it is like to be a politician now uh, in the year 2023. I do not think it is female only. I agree with you there. Um, I do think, though, that because of the way this has played out first, Jacinda Ardern and now Nicola Sturgeon, that it can be easily framed in that way. But, you know, even here... Uh, this week we heard about Dennis Nocton, who said he will not be contesting the next general election, you know, and, and and he gave other reasons as well about what, you know, having been in politics for a very long time and wanting to explore other things. So Stephen Collins was writing about this. Michael McDowell was writing about this. Stephen Collins was particularly focusing today on kind of the threat to Fine Gael in relation to how many politicians aren't running again. And I think it is a really interesting time that we are having this discussion and seeing so evidently high-profile female leaders who bring a lot of empathy to their job, and I think both Nicola Sturgeon and Jacinda Ardern did, but also male politicians who maybe take a different tack about how they go about politics, also saying they're leaving. And I kind of personally find it alarming, if I'm being honest. I, I worry, and, and there's, a, you know, there's a piece, I don't know we're going to be talking about our pieces of the week later on, but I, there was a, a line, I think, in Una Malali's piece this week about what kind of politician will we be left with if all the good ones go, basically. But I guess we can come back to that later. Yeah, Pat, it's a very good point. I mean, I think, you know, we should say Scottish Nationalist Party, you know, faces some serious challenges, actually, in terms of its strategic approach over the next couple of years, uh, as well as, you know, some domestic and, and internal difficulties. But regardless of that, I think the most telling thing about this resignation is is what Nicola Sturgeon was saying about the pressures of the job. And I'm sure there are many Irish politicians listening to that who could relate directly to it. And it, it is a cause for concern. Yeah, people often underestimate how tough you need to be to be um, to be a politician, particularly a senior politician who's in the public eye all the time. And while taking at face value what Nicola Sturgeon said as to the reasons for her decision to go, you can't take it out of its political context either. And I think, you know, it was informed by a couple of other things uh, as well. One, a kind of a long-term trend, which is the sort of, sort of cul-de-sac that, the, the cause of Scottish separatism finds itself in at the moment. I'm writing a little bit in the column about this uh, for for tomorrow's paper. And there seems, you know, while, I mean, it's, it's kind of a paradox, really, which I suppose is not uncommon in politics in a way when you come to look at a politician's career in that, you know, she's been a, an enormously electorally successful politician, has made the SNP into the natural party of government in Scotland. But the animating cause for the SNP and for Sturgeon personally, Scottish independence, is, seems to me to be as far away as ever. And, and in fact, possibly farther away than it was maybe a decade ago, given the UK's departure from the European Union and the fact that any future independence vote in Scotland would be a vote for a hard border between England and, and Scotland. And I just think that 
massively diminishes the chances of a vote in favour of of independence, even if the SNP could, uh, you know, direct events to achieve that vote, which... Uh, they can't at the moment. Now, you can always reverse out of a cul-de-sac, but it takes some time to do it. So I don't think you can divorce that context, the political context, from the Sturgeon decision. And the other, I suppose, is the the other thing one might mention in this regard is the political controversy that she had to endure recently over transgender issues and the case of a transgender prisoner who was in uh, was convicted of rape while identifying as a man, subsequently identified as a woman, was in a, a woman's prison and due to a public outcry was, uh, uh, was, was moved to public, I guess, and political outcry was, was, was moved to a men's prison. And that case is still uh, ongoing, but it, it sort of demonstrated uh, that Sturgeon had become, on this issue at least, I think, s- separated from the majority of public opinion as measured by polls anyway in, in Scotland. And I think she probably found that tremendously difficult and maybe was a symptom of her, I don't know, maybe losing her political touch or something. But anyway, I think it's, those, two points are, are, those two points are not irrelevant to the decision that she made. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break there now. We'll be back after this. And welcome back. Pat and Jen are still with us. Jennifer, I am intrigued by the Mick Wallace story this week. Um, let me get this straight. In the me- Register of Members' Interests, or or whatever that's exactly called when it comes to the, the European Parliament, one is required to notify uh, all forms of income. And apparently, um, for some years now, he has been working in an advisory capacity to a number of Dublin wine bars, and he did not declare this. What's going on there? Well, there's a question. We're back to this issue of financial interest, declarations, register, register interest. The crux of the question is the are the, the financial and property dealings of, of, of politicians. Now, we know from reporting over the last couple of days that Mick Wallace declared nothing on his, and you're right, it's called the register of, of, of interest of members of Dáil Éireann. Um, he declared nothing in terms of his occupations, remunerated positions, land or property when he was serving as TD in the years 2017, 2018 and 2019. But what we have actually learned over the last couple of days is that he has had to update his declaration of financial interests in the European Parliament um, to reflect income that he's now declared in his role as an advisor uh, to a company. So in the original declaration of interest in 2019, he didn't make any reference to uh, Wallace's uh, company. Um, and now he's saying effectively for which he earned up to, up to 499 or 500 euro a month. Um, where this all came from was a TikTok video that was put up where he was talking. I think he mentioned basically, I have three wine bars in Dublin. And I think that piqued people's curiosity because in his, like I said, in his Register of Member Interest Declaration, there was no mention of any such ownership. And I think there was the pressure on from the group he's in, in the EU and the committee that he's on, um, to clarify exactly how it is that he can claim on one hand when he's, you know, uh, do, doing interviews that he owns three wine bars, but yet it not be reflected. And they need to come out, basically, make this declaration um and say that this is an advisory role that he had in relation to this business up to 500 euro uh, a month. Now, the the controversy is not over. Um, I think that the left group in the European Parliament 
are going to meet again to discuss this. I think they want to meet with Mick Wallace directly. Um, they seem to be taking it quite seriously from some of the comments that they've been making. They're talking about how they, of all people, need to hold people who are within the group to the highest level of ethical standards that basically they would expect of everybody else. I think there was a phrase that they said, if, if it's unacceptable for somebody else who we're holding to account, then it's unacceptable for someone within the group to have an issue in relation to their financial declarations. Um, so I, I think I've explained, I hope I've explained it relatively, relatively okay, relatively straightforward. No, you have. I, I'll just add a, a little bit more for background for our listeners who, who may not know, you know, that, that Mick Wallace was a successful um, property developer in the years before the crash. And he was a sort of an unusual and colourful figure, both because of his left-wing political views, which are unusual among that class of people normally, and also because he was involved in interesting developments, including uh, a number of Italian restaurants and wine bars. And he was known to have, you know, great connections in Italy and source the wines themselves. And and he also has a, a great interest in youth football, which he supported. I mean, I'd have to say that you know there's there, there's a project which I've been involved in over the years called Fighting Words, which is a, a creative writing resource for young people, uh, which was set up by Roddy Doyle, which was you know greatly supported by Mick Wallace. Um, I'd also have to say I've been into his places a few times. You can get a very nice glass of Barolo and a spot of antipasti there. It's not an unpleasant. They're not unpleasant places to spend to spend an hour or two. And in fact, I've seen him you know, washing glasses and serving drinks behind the bars of these places, which he did, Pat, used to own at some point and then maintains a relationship with the with the new owners of some sort. My mother might say it's a fine head you have for Barolo. But anyway, um, yeah, look, nobody is disputing that Mick Wallace has some achievements uh, to his um, uh, to his name. Um, since he's become a member of the European Parliament, however, he has identified with... Um, I think some pretty questionable uh, regimes, uh, including but not limited to uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which, after all, runs an undemocratic military-backed dictatorship uh, and uh, which denies its people uh, fundamental freedoms. And um, Mick Wallace's and Claire Daly's rule of... uh, rule of interpreting international affairs appears to be that if anyone is opposed to the West, they're, uh, they're for them. I think he's in trouble um, on, uh, on this stuff with his own party because there is, after recent scandals, there is a, a, an air uh, of urgency uh, around the European Parliament to clean up its own act. And, um, you know, Mika sometimes gives the impression that the rules apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to him. But but they do, and he's broken the rules here, it appears, and I think he'll be uh, in trouble for it. Hmm. We'll leave it there. We'll watch this, we'll watch this space. Uh, on these Friday podcasts, we like to point our listeners towards articles that we thought were particularly interesting and worth having a look at over the course of the week. Jen, what were you looking at? I was looking at, just in the wake of um, Nicola Sturgeon stepping down, Una Malali had a piece about this and about um, something we've talked about loads, discourse, but she was talking about how I think one of the phrases she used in the piece was how there's this difference between holding power to account and attacking people simply because they hold power. And there was a line in it that I thought was was interesting. She said, not everyone deserves to be attacked so relentlessly simply because they hold political office. Um, and she kind of pointed towards um, comments made by Nicola Sturgeon herself. She talked, when Nicola Sturgeon talked about toxic discourse, and Nicola Sturgeon said that if all parties were to take the opportunity to depolarise public debate just a bit and focus more on the issues than the personalities, 
reset the tone and tenor of our discourse, then the, 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 her decision will be good for politics. And I just think that's interesting, you know, the idea of resetting the tone of debate and, and moving it away from constant attack to actually addressing the issues at hand. Is that politician on politician attack or media on politician attack or just everybody? I think it's a bit of everything. Do you know that way? You see it mm. in the doll. Like there's a lot of kind of just heckling for heckling's sake and gets very personalized sometimes. I don't know. Maybe it's just a personal thing. It's just not the kind of politics that I'd personally be into. But uh, although it makes for great headlines. So, you know, perhaps it's better for my job. But yeah, that's that's what I was looking at. So my choice is, um, is an article by Justine McCarthy in today's Irish Times. And Justine is writing, um, she starts off, she's writing about a, a young person, younger person, person in their 20s who she knows who's packing up and leaving Ireland. And, uh, and she was asking them, you know, why? And was it because of, you know, the things which we've, we've discussed many times in this podcast, you know, thing, particularly about finding a place to live and standard of living and all that, all the cost of living as well. And it was all that, but she kind of said that the person seemed to have fallen out of love with Ireland. The, the public infrastructure is terrible. They didn't like some of the sentiments which were being expressed in the political sphere, that the place just wasn't a great place to be and that there were lots of other nicer places where one could live. I think this person, this person was moving to Australia. And Justine then goes on to write a little bit about that. And what she's writing chimes a little bit with what, on the same page, actually, Dermot Ferreter is writing in his column, which is there is this disjunction between the way our leaders, uh, our official Ireland, the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Taoiseach, we're going to see a lot of it over the next few weeks in the run up to St. Patrick's Day, will be trotting around the place, uh, blowing trumpets about how wonderful Ireland is, what a great success story it's been, how it's a beacon to the world, almost, they would almost go, go that far. And for a lot of people here, that's not what they're seeing and that's not what they feel. And there might be a bit of political danger, I think, for particularly for the government parties and particularly for Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael, because they are very fond of this kind of this kind of talk. If they just start really pissing people off because it clearly isn't borne out by people's experiences, their day to day experiences of what it's like to actually live in Ireland at the moment. I think that's worth keeping an eye on. But So that's that's my piece for the day. Yeah. And also those comments from Leo Varadkar that the grass isn't always greener. It's like, well, people are clearly deciding that it is, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Pat, what about you? Yeah, the pieces I've been uh, I've been reading have been uh, to Dan McLaughlin in, uh, in Kiev for us um, very much. Uh, sense that the Russian spring offensive is getting underway. He's writing in this morning's paper that Ukrainian officials say that Russia has slightly changed its uh, tactics of aerial bombardment. More missiles is ge- are, are getting through. The Ukrainians are finding them harder to 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 shut down. So the war seems definitely to be entering uh, a new phase there. I've also read reports elsewhere of colossal Russian losses, particularly among the, uh, the, the, the pardoned convicts uh, who are serving in uh, the regiments of the, uh, the Wagner group, where Russia is in a way that is kind of reminiscent of Stalin's tactics on the Eastern Front in the Second World War, sending waves of poorly equipped, uh, poorly trained infantry men into a meat grinder and they're getting chewed up and that the Ukrainians in some uh, some theatres are, are, are having to retreat, but only after, you know, they've inflicted massive losses uh, in, in personnel terms uh, on the Russians. So not alone is the war entering a new phase, it seems to me to be entering a new and very 
bloody phase. And I think we'll read a lot about that um, in, in the weeks to come. No, I think that's very true, both because we are almost upon the first anniversary of, of the invasion and also because the, the long-predicted spring offensive, I think we're, we're starting to see that and we're going to see a, an escalation in violence and death and everything over the next few months. Grim, grim, though that is. But we will leave that there for today. This podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan. It's engineered by JJ Vernon. Thanks very much to Jen and to Pat for coming along today. We will be back with you very soon indeed after the weekend. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.